Peter, we're going to talk about understanding Jesus. And uh, why do we need to understand Jesus and the principles Jesus taught? Why do we need to understand Jesus and the principles he taught? I think the only uh, sensible reason for thinking you need to do that is because you think that Jesus really was the person that he claimed to be or that he's presented as claiming himself to be within uh, the Gospels and the New Testament. Um, And if you think that he's right about who he is, and that his earliest followers were right about who he was, um, then what else can you do with any intellectual integrity except stand under his his authority as the the divine self-revelation of God to us in history? Um, if you think he's wrong about that, well, you might think that he had the occasional nice idea and so on, um, but it wouldn't be of any sort of fundamental importance to stand under his ideas any more than any other great you know, moral teacher or prophet or what have you. And what are the buzz terms uh, we must grasp in this contest? This is a, a question asking about the, the, the beginning of my book on understanding Jesus. I, I try and sort of recapture some sort of cultural buzzwords um, that sort of frame people's thinking in this area. Um, one in particular is thinking about the idea of enlightenment. And people will talk about the enlightenment uh, as if it's a sort of um, intellectual movement that's inherently sceptical about Christian claims and so on. And I point out that, of course, actually a lot of enlightenment thinkers were Christians and were not sceptical about Christian claims and there's no such sort of one monolithic thing as the Enlightenment Um, there's all sorts of uh, uh, movements of thought within the Enlightenment era uh, many of which are very Christian uh, and that actually it's the Bible itself that, that presents Jesus to us in typical Enlightenment imagery to think of uh, John presenting of Jesus as the light of the world um, uh, and so um, this idea of, of enlightenment is a sort of ancient spiritual idea about having an experience that comes to illuminate reality for you in a new way and Jesus claims to be uh, someone who when we experience him can illuminate the reality of God and how he wants to relate for us in a, in a really new way um, and I think that you can approach those claims in a way that is um, completely at ease with the, the spirit of the Enlightenment. Um, certainly as Immanuel Kant, uh, a leading uh, Enlightenment philosopher, would have understood it as taking responsibility for your own thinking. Uh, he wasn't against um, standing under an authority or listening to authority figures. Uh, what Immanuel Kant was against was unthinkingly bowing down to authority figures. Of course, if there's good reason to trust an authority on something, if there's good reason to think Jesus is an authority on who God is and what he wants, what role he wants to take in our lives, then the only responsible thing to do is to stand under his authority. Uh, and it's the reasoning that leads you to uh, place your life at the foot of the cross, as it were. And there's no uh, contradiction or tension there. How can we come to understand reality through hermeneutical dialogue? Ooh, okay. Um, Let's see how I would phrase this. 
So, again, in terms of framing the issue for the reader, and I think it's very important sometimes to sort of establish how are we going to approach thinking through a question before we even actually deal with um, the evidence and the arguments that we're going to give people. Um, I talk about this uh, hermeneutic uh, of coming to understand things, where you differentiate between... um, the worldview beliefs that you already have, you bring to the table with you. Uh, and some people might, might come at the evidence about Jesus as a pretty convinced atheist, and other people as an agnostic, and other people as someone who would say, well, I think there's some kind of creator, there's something out there, but I don't really know specifically what it's like or how we could come to know more about it. And then there are uh, maybe a set of agreed sort of principles or rules of doing good history and so on that we can agree on, that we can use to establish what is the relevant uh, data or information or historical facts that we can all agree on. And then there's a matter of interpreting that data or, or arguing about what the best explanation of the agreed information is going to be. And particularly when it gets to this stage of of what do you think the best explanation of that that data is, there's going to be a big impact of of the beliefs that you've already brought to the table with you. Uh, And so, um, supposing um, we have uh, some uh, good criteria that establishes some good historical data about um, Jesus' being crucified and Jesus being laid in a tomb and the tomb being found empty on the third day and various people, individuals, groups of people soon afterwards sincerely claiming to have experienced the resurrected Jesus um, to the point where they're willing to be martyred for that claim. Those within uh, the Guild of New Testament uh, historiography would be pretty uncontroversial claims to make. The controversial thing is how do you interpret that? What's the best explanation of those facts? Because, of course, the people who say, We're, we can already come to the table pretty convinced that there, there's no God, they're going to be pretty convinced that there couldn't be any miracles, and very, very sceptical about saying a miracle is the best explanation of the evidence. All of the weight of the force of the argument is sort of going to have to be going into convincing them that, that a miracle is possible, that there maybe, well, maybe there is a God then, um, rather than into um, the weight of the evidence just going into resurrection by God is the best explanation, which might be the case for someone who already looks at that data with a prior belief in some kind of a god who could work a miracle. The only question then is, well, did he on this occasion or not? You see. So the impact of your prior philosophical beliefs on, on what you make of uh, the argument to the best explanation from some set of data. And so those I, are very different starting points. That's right. So the different starting points might lead to different endpoints. Even, even if all the readers of the book all agreed with each other on how much weight of evidence there was in the arguments for the Christian understanding of Jesus, because they've started in different places, they might end up in different places. What does it mean to trust the biblical testimony of the historical Jesus? Okay. I would then move on to talking about, well, what is our our primary historical sources of information about Jesus and how do we assess them and often in Christian apologetics we will immediately leap to 
um, one of two approaches to this information. Uh, on the one hand, we would get some standard sort of historical questions that you, any sensible person would want to ask of a historical document, like, you know, um, how soon after the supposed events was it written? Was it written within the lifetime of memory? Um, how soon after the original document was written do we have copies of that document? How many copies do we have to, in order to allow us to establish with some accuracy what the original text must have been, and so on? That's um, sort of taking an approach that tries to argue for the general historical reliability of a, of a text. Um, or, uh, or sort of combined with that, we could look at an approach that would use some historical criteria to say, even if you were sceptical about the general reliability of the information in this text, maybe there are still some nuggets of gold in there, as it were, that we can pick out, that we can sift out using some good historical criteria. Um, so that we could establish facts like Jesus' crucifixion and his burial in the empty tomb, uh, even if you were minded to think that most of the, the Passion story was unreliable. We could still establish some reliable facts that needed to be explained. That's usually where we, we go to. But I, I introduced this, this sort of prior level, um, drawing on uh, work in the philosophy of knowledge, epistemology, uh, about the, the priority of trust in knowledge gaining. Um, that uh, usually the sort of natural human thing to do is to trust a source of information, a apparent source of information, in the absence of any signs that it's untrustworthy. That is, we don't have to say, I'm not going to trust what you say unless I've got some independent reason to think that you're trustworthy. What I normally do is uh, I trust what you say just so long as I don't notice anything that would make me sceptical about you, as it were. Um, you know, I say, what's the time? You look at, you do this and say, it's six o'clock. I would normally then believe, oh, it's six o'clock then. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, it, only if I had some independent reasons for thinking, hang on a minute, uh, I've, you know, I've seen three other clocks recently and they all, they all said it was four o'clock, <laughs> might I be sceptical about you, you see? But, but trust is sort of fundamental. And indeed, if it, if it wasn't, then we'd be in real trouble about coming to know all sorts of things, um, even to sort of learn about language and things. You know, when teacher is teaching us our ABCs, we don't kind of go, well, I'm not going to believe that teacher is teaching me the, the right letters until I've got some independent evidence that teacher really knows the alphabet. <laughs> you know, how, how could we? So um, trust is very fundamental to knowing. And then I just sort of look at, well, just read the text. Of the, just read Mark's Gospel. Does it strike you as trustworthy? Or does it strike you uh, a little bit like the used car salesman of legend, you know? How does it strike you? Let's look at people who've spent their professional careers um, uh, translating uh, the Bible. I look at um, uh, the testimony of J.B. Phillips, who was an English uh, clergyman who single-handedly translated the New Testament over many, many years and sort of said, in that process of translation, I never once felt that this was a, a sort of really absurd, magical, mythological. It just struck me as very sort of down-to-earth very realistic, very honest. Um, the disciples were always revealing that they muck up. Um, and it just strikes you as, as what 
Philip it's called The Ring of Truth about it. He said, you know, as a vicar, I, I learn, you know, I get this sort of sixth sense when people are trying to pull the wool over my eyes. They want a good job recommendation, or they, people are always kind of wanting something. And you just, you just develop this sort of intuitive way of making judgments about things. And um, I think that it's perfectly uh, reasonable to bring that kind of intuitive ju- judgment into play in assessing the testimony we find in the New Testament. Uh, what are the five ways uh, of spiritual enlightenment? Okay, so having done a lot of this framing of the issue for people, giving people some tools to understand how we're going to think through the arguments, I then present a, a cumulative case of five arguments for the Christian understanding of Jesus. Um, paralleling somewhat Thomas Aquinas' uh, famous five ways of arguing for the existence of God. I, I divide up the evidence so that there are five ways of, of understanding, coming to understand that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. And they're a cumulative case, so they, they all sort of add to each other, and indeed the sum of the whole is more than the, the sum of the individual parts, um, because you're getting evidence from a uh, a multiplicity of sort of disciplines and angles all pointing in the same direction. So it's a bit like a sort of building a court case, if you like. And I think that these are the arguments that Jesus and his earliest disciples themselves gave uh, to back up their understanding of, of, of Jesus, to back up his claims. And those are, number one, the dilemma posed by um, Jesus' claims to divinity establishing that we've got good reason to think he did issue such claims in the context of the rest of our information about his character and his actions. Uh, The so-called lunatic liar or lord argument is sometimes put, you know, if if he made those claims, and we established that first, uh, they were either true or false. And of course, if they're true, then he is lord. But if they're false, then we could say, well, on the one hand, maybe... He knew they were false, or thought they were false, in which case he was lying. He was a blasphemer. He was a con artist. But that doesn't fit very well with our general sense of his moral character from the rest of our data. Or, okay, maybe he didn't realise that they were false claims. Maybe he was deluded. Maybe he was sincerely wrong about who he was. But that's a really big gap between your self-image and who you really are, which seems to be you know, a really good measure of someone's sanity, um, the gap between your self-image and who you really are. Um, but again, just to dismiss Jesus as a loony doesn't seem to fit very well with the rest of our information about the sanity of his character, the depth of his teaching and personal interactions, the canniness of the way in which he avoided being trapped in the linguistic uh, traps trying to be set for him by the, by the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on. Um, and that's an argument I think at least sort of makes you want to worry, makes you want to think, who is this Jesus then? Maybe it's not enough to drive you to the Christian conclusion straight away, but maybe it's enough to kind of soak up some of your prior scepticism. And that means when I now present the second argument, your prior scepticism is slightly less, less sceptical about the Christian claim than you were before. 
So argument number two is uh, Jesus' miracles in general, uh, which are good actions that he does uh, that often speak to his self-understanding because a lot of them can be seen as sort of enacted claims to divinity. Um, Think of him healing the paralytic after he's claimed to have the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. And they'll say, who can say that but God alone? Um, So this sharpens the dilemma of the the lunatic lie-lord argument but if these miracles happened, and there's some independent evidence to think that they did, that's an independent reason as well to sort of validate Jesus' claims. And I look at, uh, you know, how many of the miracles do we have independent reports of the, of the same miracle happening from different sources, and so on. And then I look at the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus as the kind of capstone miracle. And I... We earlier in the interview mentioned the sort of way that you argue that from this set of data that you can establish, uh, even putting aside the general reliability of the scriptures. Then I look at Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah and the nature of the Messiah, where the Messiah would come from, what sort of things would he do, and so on. And there I try to be pretty conservative in mounting this argument, because I've seen it used by Christians before, in what I think is a little bit of a sort of overgenerous kind of a way, as it were. So I want to look for a, a, a fairly small range of prophecies where the fulfilment of that prophecy is, is, is multiply attested. So Not, higher that's right, yes. Yeah. So let's set the bar pretty high. And let's be very generous on the odds that we, we give to these fulfilments. So, uh, you know... Um, the, the, the Messiah would be someone who would at least be thought by his contemporaries to perform miraculous healings. Well, how many people at that time were thought to be performing such things? You know, if we said it was one in four people, that would be hugely overgenerous, wouldn't it? You know, to imagine that one in four people at that time were being thought by their contemporaries to heal people. But let's use one in four because that's a really generous number. So let's do that kind of thing. Run the calculations, and I, I calculate. And I, I got a PhD mathematician to help me work through this because my background is in philosophy, not maths. So I, I brought in an outside expert as well. And we calculated uh, that for just 27 fulfilled prophecies that were multiply attested as to their fulfilment, with very generous odds being used, the chances of Jesus fulfilling them sort of just by accident rather than it being a divine conspiracy, as it were, was uh, roughly equivalent to your odds of picking up one grain of sand on the planet that I had independently pre-marked as the grain of sand that you'd have to pick up on your first try at getting the right one. Uh, this is pretty big numbers, or equivalent to uh, picking the right one star in the whole galaxy. Um, so even being, you know, taking a small subset of prophecies and being very generous on the odds, there was a pretty long odds uh, that I think speak in favour of the sort of design hypothesis, as, as it were, that Jesus fulfilled these by divine design, rather than just being uh, a random coincidence kind of thing. And then the last five of the five ways is looking at contemporary religious experience where Jesus is involved uh, of a number of different kinds, a number of different arguments from religious experience, be that so-called sort of private religious experience 
or publicly accessible, publicly judgeable. So things like apparent answers to prayer, apparent healings, apparent exorcisms, and so on, uh, and looking at some contemporary uh, witness to those from um, who I consider to be reliable witnesses, and so on. And um, I look at sort of five or six different sort of strands of this argument from contemporary religious experience, and uh, I think even if you um, didn't share my confidence in all of the stories that I that I give. Um, there is nevertheless quite a strong sort of accumulation of evidence from lots of independent witnesses to all sorts of different things that speak to the reality of Jesus actually actually interacting with this world here and now. So this is not just a, a historical investigation about a figure from two thousand years ago. Uh, but uh, an investigation into someone that Christians claim is interacting with them here and now uh, in the world. Uh, and those are the, the five ways to understanding Jesus that I look at. Thank you. This will be the final question, Peter. Uh, what are the anticipated outcomes or changes in a believer's life uh, in each way they experience? Mm. Well, I'll put a spin on that, but yes. So, I hope that this will be a book that changes people's lives, obviously, and I, I hope that it changes the lives of people who um, start reading it uh, even as fairly convinced atheists, um, all the way through to people who start believing it as already uh, followers of Christ, but who will have their understanding and confidence in Christ uh, increased through the book, uh, and not simply um, a greater understanding of their belief that Jesus is Lord, but a greater understanding of what it means to see Jesus as your Lord and to uh, be attempting to follow him as your teacher in life, to have a greater understanding of, of what Jesus saw true spirituality and human flourishing as being. Um, Jesus' understanding of the role that he wanted to play in our spirituality, both individually and corporately as a, as a Christian community, uh, communing together in Christ as our divinely appointed access point uh, to a loving relationship with God, where we love God uh, with all of our mind and all of our heart and all of our strength uh, and love our neighbour uh, as ourselves. Um, so I really try and, and put um, this... Uh, biggest framework of all around the book of, of what is it to have a true spirituality according to Jesus and was he right about that uh, and saying that I think there's really good reasons to think that he was right about that and therefore really good reason to enter into the life of Christian spirituality in a wholehearted um, whole person kind of way, this is not just an intellectual issue, um, this is an intellectual issue but one that should have impact um, on our whole lives. Thank you very much. Blessings. Thank you. That was great. Thank you.